everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. Thank you so much for joining. This is a very special episode, as you will see. But before we start, please do show some love by liking this, giving it a thumbs up. Also, if you're not already a subscriber, please become a subscriber by hitting the subscribe and then the bell. We've made it over 100,000 subscribers and we want to keep going. And thank you so much for your support to those of you who have already liked and subscribed. Also, if you want to help make the show possible, you can become Patreon members at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. For $1 a month, you get to make the show possible. For $5 a month, you get to make the show possible and you get bonus content, extended interviews, additional interviews. So for this episode, for instance, we are, of course, making the interview with Glenn about his late husband, David Miranda's life and legacy that will be free and available to everyone. But if you want to see an interview I did with Glenn about the war in Ukraine, you can find that at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. What else do you get at Patreon? You also get a very fun live taping I did in New York City with Brianna Joy Gray. So you can get the Glenn interview, the Brianna Joy Gray interview, all sorts of other interviews at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Now, please do enjoy this interview I'm about to play for you. It's a very moving interview. It's a pre-taped interview that I did with Glenn Greenwald about the life and legacy of his late husband, David Miranda. So excited to have the Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Glenn Greenwald back on the show. He's the host of the very good show, System Update, which you can watch on Rumble or listen to as a podcast. And I asked Glenn to come on uh, to talk actually about something personal, uh, the life and legacy of his late husband, David Miranda, who is uh, the Brazilian activist and politician who died this past May at the very young age of 37. And David was a member of Congress representing the state of Rio de Janeiro. So Glenn, thank you so much for joining. And again, my sincerest condolences. Thank you, Katie, for asking me to come on. Um, I haven't actually talked in any formats like this about David. Uh, and his life and his death in the last six weeks. I I mean, I've had to do a lot of public things like his funeral and his wake and the like, but um, so I'm, we're, we're in the process of unveiling what will be the David Miranda Institute to kind of honor David's legacy and continue his work and expand on it. So I'm starting now again to kind of talk a lot about David. So I appreciate uh, you asking me on in this kind of a format to be able to do that. Oh yeah, of course. Um, so before talking about the way you're going to honor him with this institute, which sounds great, uh, I just wanted to know if you could tell people about him and also how his own personal life shaped his politics. Yeah, I mean, David is an example. You know, I think most of us end up having our politics shaped by our personal experience and who we are as people. But David probably 
that was true of more than almost anybody else I knew. And it was because the start of his life was so extraordinary. And that was what made his life so extraordinary as well. Um, David was born to a single mother um, in the poorest part of Rio de Janeiro in poverty in Brazil and poverty in Rio in particular are, I wouldn't say unlike anything seen in the United States because these days poverty has gotten a lot worse in the United States with the disappearance of the middle class. But nonetheless, the level of deprivation that most people who are poor experience include things like access, no access to clean drinking water, some of the most horrific emergency rooms you can possibly imagine, you know, where you, even if you're having a heart attack or a stroke, you may wait eight hours or 10 hours in an ER for understaffed. Public hospitals, uh, the education system is barely functional. Um, there's no transportation system other than like three, four hour commutes and the like. So the poverty that David was born into, like so most of the people in Rio de Janeiro, was extremely suffocating and depriving. And that was made all the worse by the fact that David's mother died when he was five years old. He has talked about before how she was forced to do sex work as a way of supporting him and his brothers. He was the youngest brother. And by the time she died, when he was five, his older brothers were already gone from the house. They were much older and he was basically on his own. He never knew his father. So he started life as an orphan at five years old in Jacarezinho, which is one of the largest, most sprawling and poorest favelas in Rio de Janeiro. And by the time David died, 32 years later, he died the, the day before his 38th birthday, there were some of the world's most influential politicians lamenting David's death, but also celebrating his life, including the current president of Brazil and a former president of Brazil and the president of other Latin American countries, including Ecuador. There were obituaries in the New York Times and the Washington Post kind of tributing and honoring David's life and sort of go from, you know, that kind of a beginning to, in very much of a short time, make so much of an impact on the world. He was, you know, in 2019, when he was first went to Congress, when he first uh, got to Congress, he was one of the only openly gay people ever to get to the Brazilian Congress. He was the first ever openly gay man to be elected to Rio de Janeiro City Council in 2016. He, he was named by Time Magazine, one of the 50 next world's next great generational leaders, and the impact that David had on the world was way measured by way more than just like his notoriety and the fact that, you know, people were so aware of him, although that obviously is a reflection of how extraordinary he is. He really did devote his life and his politics almost exclusively to providing opportunities for people who in Brazil continue to live the kind of impoverished and deprived life into which he was born the beginning of David's life and the way he grew up was central to his identity, and he made it that way. He embraced that. He never wanted to forget that. And all of the work he did was about trying to overcome political polarization or ideological division with the only goal in mind of creating material improvement for people's lives who most need it. And I've spent the last six weeks hearing from so many people, people I didn't know, people I do know who are so emotional when talking about their interactions with David and the impact that he had on them and the way he tried to improve the lives of their communities, that it's just incredibly moving to hear this like stream of people talk about David in such an emotional way. And how did you guys meet? 
I had been coming to Brazil uh, for many years. I fell in love with Rio de Janeiro the very first time I came here in the mid-90s. It was a city that just resonated with my soul. And uh, I was living in New York. I was I just gotten out of an 11-year relationship. I was working as a lawyer and wasn't happy about that. I was looking for something else to do. I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my the rest of my life. And so I decided I'm going to rent an apartment for seven weeks in Rio. I cleared my calendar. I was a lawyer and, you know, kind of put all trials and settlement conferences and client matters on the side. And I rented an apartment for seven weeks with no plan other than to come to Rio with my dog and just walk on the beach, kind of clear my head, figure out what I wanted to do. And on the very first day that I was here, the first full day I got here at night, I woke up in the morning, I went to the beach. Maybe I was there an hour at most. I was like reading the newspaper and like, you know, studying Portuguese and like, having drinks and just enjoying the first day in Rio, a volleyball came over and knocked over my drink. And about 15 seconds later, this very good looking Brazilian man came over and apologized for that and said that he had been the one who had hit the ball playing volleyball. And our eyes locked and we just started talking and we basically fell in love like in that moment. And we just never separated since. Um, And it forced me to figure out how to live in Brazil because at the time the defense of marriage act, which was a law enacted in the mid nineties with this huge bipartisan consensus under Clinton banned the federal government from giving any rights at all based on a recognition of the validity of same sex couples. So that meant that included immigration rights, which means if he had been a woman, I would have had automatic rights to get him a green card and we could have moved to the United States and I could have worked as a lawyer there. But because of that law, David couldn't get a visa. I couldn't get a visa for him. We couldn't live together in the U.S. And Brazil, amazingly, had a law that was judicially recognized on humanitarian grounds that said it's cruel to force Brazilian citizens to be separate from their same-sex partners of their foreign nationals. And so we're judicially recognizing a right of permanent residence if you can demonstrate you're in a spousal relationship. And after a year or so, when we lived together, we did that. And I was able to live in Brazil, but it forced me to Stop being a lawyer. That's what led to my becoming, I started a blog. I had no plans, but that's what led to my journalism career. And David and I then built a life together over the next 18 years that ultimately ended up including adopting and raising children together. And David was central to everything I did in my life, my work. He was integral to the Snowden story, of course, to the Brazil investigation we did. And he and I also together created his work and his career. We just, everything that I have in my life was the byproduct of that day that I met David. Can you talk about his role in the Snowden story? Yeah. So when Edward Snowden contacted me in 2012, at the end of 2012, and it took a while to kind of establish communications and we got Lauren Poitras involved because she was able to figure out the encryption that he was demanding in order to talk. And we became aware of the magnitude of the story, the fact that we were going to be involved in one of the biggest political and journalistic controversies in years, if not decades. That was very obvious. Obviously, you don't do that without turning to the person that you're sharing your life with and making sure that both of you are comfortable with the risks you're about to take. And David instantly pushed me to do it almost demanded I do it, told me I had no choice. This is what I went into journalism to do. This is what I was born to do. And so having his support, you know, was something that really emboldened me to fly to Hong Kong, meet Edward Snowden in this very kind of tense and dangerous situation. David was the one who 
was pushing me to threaten the Guardian that if they didn't publish these documents quickly to leave the Guardian. He was always kind of there for to kind of like embolden me to do the story as aggressively as it needed to be done. And then about three months after we started the story in August of 2013, we discovered that a very important part of the archive, which ended up including a lot of the stories about the United States spying on Brazil and UN conferences and a lot of other stories, but especially the Brazil stories that made such an impact, that part of the archive had become corrupted and inaccessible because Snowden had given us a password different from the one that he actually put on there. And we tried and tried and tried to get in. By this point, Snowden was trapped in an airport in Russia, and he didn't have these passwords. He obviously wouldn't carry them with him. And by some huge just stroke of a combination of intense work and luck, Laura Poitras was able to get into this archive. And the question became, how would she get it to me? She was in Berlin. I was in Rio. Obviously, she couldn't mail it to me. We were probably the two most surveilled people on the planet at that point. And she didn't trust the Guardian. They offered to come and pick it up and bring it to me. The only person she said she would trust was either me or David, and I couldn't travel because the U.S. government had been very threatening. If I tried to travel, they could arrest me. And so David stepped up and said, I'll go and get it. And he flew to Germany, spent a few days with Laura, and then on his way back, bringing this crucial part of the archive that ended up having some of the biggest impact. He was detained at Heathrow Airport. The British authorities had been spying on our conversations. They knew what he was doing and that he was bringing back this part of the archive. And they detained him and uh, under a terrorism law, which is the authority they have if they suspect someone's involved in terrorism. They can detain you for up to effectively 12 hours. The whole time they threatened him with prison and he knew he had been detained under terrorism law. He talked afterwards about you know, he's not white, he's not American, he's not British. And when you hear the British and American governments accusing you of being involved in terrorism, this is 2013, the war on terror, very much alive. Like you have a lot of fear about what that means and what they can do to you. They took every single one of his electronic devices, searched through every single one of his documents, questioned him about every part of our life. And the only reason they let him go, they were threatening the whole time that he was going to prison for terrorism charges was because the Brazilian government got so involved under former President Dilma Rousseff, and it created a diplomatic scandal between the UK and Brazil. And David finally was let go after 12 hours and flew back. And that became a global story that dominated the headlines for a week or two weeks that thrust David into the spotlight, which he never wanted, in fact, always wanted to avoid. Oh, hi. It's good to be back. For the very first time, as everybody can see, I'm a little nervous. I've been this past week since I, I knew I was going to come back. It's been four years, and like just to be here, all the memories just flush into my mind all the time. It's been hard. It's a take a, a two. I thought that I completely forgot that event in 2013, and I have moved on. I have a, a really rough week thinking and reviving every moment that I'm being here. So I sat in a hotel. I didn't want to walk a lot. I walked one day in the city. I feel a little threatening here still. It's just the emotions that come. But why? Why did that happen to me? It didn't happen to other journalists. I always make that question. And like, uh, it's the reason that happened is because I'm a Brazilian. 
I came from the favelas in Rio de Janeiro, and I'm LGBT. And why did I did what I did to help Snowden, Glenn, on that time, and Laura, what we did? We learned very young that that is just a path that you have to take. When you are so young in that kind of environment, you have to be strong for the world. And that's what we did. When we, I got detained here, everything has like completely changed. Like, uh, I will tell you, like, it was one of the hardest times, but it was one of the most bravest times because I look up to like my husband, I look up at what Edward Snowden was doing, Laura Poitras did at that time, and many other journalists around the world and I could not be just standing there and not fighting alongside of them. And they only detained me because I'm a Brazilian. That was the only reason they detained me. Laura was here a month before. I went to meet with her. She passed through Heathrow, and she was not detained. They only did that because the UK government, the US government, they still think the Brazilians and all the other countries that they call third world countries, I think that's just discriminating. Our countries that are worth less on the eyes of their own democracy. And they detain me. Four years later, I'm here in front of you. I choose to come because we battle and we won we won. We won. Journalists are not going to be more stopped in this country under that terrible law. We won. And that was the incident that kind of radicalized David and politicized David. And I remember him telling me, you may want to avoid politics, but politics doesn't necessarily want to avoid you. And that was the impulse that made him decide he was going to get political. He then led a campaign in Brazil for the Brazilian government to give asylum to Edward Snowden, which they almost did but didn't. And then that kind of is what made him a known political figure. How did he decide to become a politician? Like, what was that process like? Were you consulted on that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was always clear the minute David started doing these political things. He never wanted to be in politics. I remember, you know, when we used to travel and I had to meet political or journalistic figures or they came to Rio and wanted to go out to dinner, he would always say, oh, I don't want to go. You're just going to talk about politics the whole time. It's going to be incredibly boring. He had no interest in getting near politics. He wanted to do like marketing for Sony. He loved video games. That was like kind of his interest. He wanted to do like that kind of uh, technology. That was really his passion. And it was this that, that radicalized him. And um, from that, moment of doing that campaign, leading the campaign to get Snow uh, asylum for Snowden. We flew to Russia and we spent time with Snowden and Snowden and David really loved each other. They developed this friendship. David started getting more and more involved in a variety of causes, um, including LGBT causes on behalf of gay kids in Brazil, who David's situa whose situation David understood from first-hand experience. Um, and it was just immediately apparent the way in which David touched people. Just he was like he had this just natural charisma 
that made everybody pay attention to him. He didn't have to call attention to himself. And like he had this amazing ability to speak from the heart. He would, if he tried to speak with the script, it would be terrible. And he gave that up very early on and he would just start getting up in front of crowds and speaking like with passion and from the heart and everybody was transfixed. They really were. He just had this ability to grab people. And the thing is like, everybody loves David. Everybody loved David. It was impossible not to like David. You know, when he went into the hospital and everybody knew how sick he was, his phone was filled with people offering prayers and thoughts and love all completely across the political spectrum from every country, from every part of Brazil and uh, it was just obviously something he was born to do. And so he decided he would run for city council because Rio was really his passion. He was born in Rio. He was raised in Rio. And when he won in 2016, he, like I said, became the first ever openly gay person to be elected to the Rio de Janeiro City Council in its history. He was 31 at the time. And it was obvious he had a very bright political future. And then two years later, he ran for Congress and ended up uh, going to Congress by this kind of complex series of events and uh, it was you know everybody believed david's future was unlimited and he replaced another politician right who fled fearing for his life yeah the way elections work in brazil for congress is a little different than the u.s where you have districts and one person runs against the other in brazil everybody just runs like you have 1500 people running they all run as part of the party and the number of votes each party gets determines how many seats in Congress each party has. And we knew there were four people in David's party that he couldn't beat, but the expectation was David's party, which was this left-wing socialist party, Peace All, was going to get five seats, and David wanted to come in fifth. So that was the strategy for him to win, and he did come in fifth in the party. The problem is that there was that huge right-wing wave that was unexpected. That's the one that lifted Bolsonaro to the presidency in 2018. And so when he came in fifth place, he became the first alternate because his party unexpectedly only got four and not five seats. And then what happened was the person who was ahead of him, the right ahead of him, his name's Jean Willis. He had spent two terms as a congressman. He actually won Big Brother Brazil, which sounds trivial, but it was actually a big deal. It was public voting and they voted for a gay man, an openly gay man, to win. It was like the third season. They became a big celebrity because of that. Converted that into two terms in Congress. And then when he got elected to his third term and the Bolsonaros ended up in power, not just Bolsonaro, but, you know, his sons, one got elected to the Senate. The other had the highest vote total in history to get into the Congress. He had been at war with the Bolsonaros because the Bolsonaros were primarily known as a viciously anti-gay family. They had physical confrontations. He used to get bullied physically in the Brazilian Congress He'd walk down the hallway and they would like bump into him on purpose in the bathroom. And he felt like Brazil had become unsafe for him. And he fled. He went into exile in Spain saying his life had been threatened and he felt like his life was uh, in danger. And when he fled before taking that seat, it meant that David automatically assumed that seat. And it was amazing because Gian was basically the most prominent gay politician in Brazil. And when they drove him out by um, an amazing, improbable happenstance, which is David happened to have the next highest vote total, David went into that spot as this openly gay man, as this black man who had you know, been raised in extreme poverty. And David was very physically imposing. So nobody was ever going to physically intimidate David and he kind of stepped forward at that moment with this incredible bombast and this 
like strength, but also like admitting he was a little bit scared. And he just became this figure of national importance. He gave this interview on Globo that everybody watched. It was very classic David. Like he spoke very emotionally and from the heart. He was very honest about the fears he had because a year earlier or less, um, one of our best friends, David's actual best friend, whose name was Marielle Franco, who also was a black LGBT favela raised politician. She and David got elected to the city council together. They sat side by side in the city council with the same party. She had been brutally assassinated, I think, eight months earlier. It was, yeah, eight, nine months earlier. And Marielle's widow was also our best friend and to this very day still is. She now occupies Marielle's seat in the city council. And they're about to give David the highest honor this week that I'm going to get from Monica. But that really affected David psychologically because it created this climate of fear. Like we still don't know why anyone killed Marielle and it created this climate of fear. And that was very much the climate in which David had stepped forward together with the empowerment of the Bolsonaros. And David talked openly about that, but he did it with such kind of strength and courage and, you know, that it really captured a lot of people's hearts and attention. Did he consider not taking the seat? Did he consider kind of retiring from political life given this climate of fear? No. I mean, you know, remember when I was concerned about the implications of the Snowden reporting and what this might mean, and there we did get reporting later on from Mike Isakoff and others that the Obama administration was looking for ways to criminalize the journalist and prosecute us. It was David saying, you can't even consider not doing this. You have to do this. This is what you are born to do. And so when it came time for David to go to Brasilia as a member of Congress, in that interview, he gave that same answer when they asked him if he was afraid. He's like, yeah, of course I'm afraid. But if I, with all the things I now have, with all the position I have now, with the privilege I now have, if I don't do this and fight for the people who elected me to these positions, who is going to? And so that was very much like the attitude that we fed each other. And another important part of your lives together, obviously, is your being um, parents to um, two young boys who you adopted. And I actually have a clip here. It's a very sweet video of you guys signing adoption mm. papers. So let's see. Let's just play this. <laughs> So that's a really sweet video. Everyone looks really excited. Yeah, I mean, that, you know, of all the things that David did for me, that was the most important and the best is, you know, he always wanted to be a father. Um, sorry. Uh, and for a long time, I didn't, I didn't think I would be a good father. And he like badgered me and hectored me and persuaded me. And, uh, finally won like he usually did. And, you know, the decision to adopt those kids was the best thing, you know, I ever did and that David ever did for me. And yeah, that's obviously a scene that's really important to us. That was, we had already had them for, uh, I think like 14 months. That was the finalization of the adoption. You go and you get guardianship first and you live with them for a year. And then you have to do these like interviews to make sure things are going well. And then you go back to the city of their origin and you finalize the adoption and has a lot of, you know, symbolic importance and value. And 
yeah, having to, you know, be the ability to be together with our kids and navigate this together and work together to on David's legacy is the thing that, you know, gives me the greatest kind of purpose and comfort in all of this. And how are they doing your kids? You know, they're amazing. I mean, they've been through a lot, like obviously kids who end up in an orphanage at a very early age have gone through a lot in order to get there. And, you know, they're very tough kids, but, uh, at the same time, you know, that's kind of the tragedy of this in a way is, you know, they had a lot of instability in their lives. And one of the things we worked on most was giving them a sense of security and stability. Like, you know, have a family that's not going anywhere. And David was, you know, David taught me how to be a father. He was such a natural at it. I had to work at it and learn it. Um, and so, you know, of course they feel that this loss in, a very heavy way, but we also went through nine months of, you know, a very difficult moment period as well. When David was hospitalized before he died in ICU, he never left ICU. Uh, and it gave us a lot of moments with David that were extremely moving and valuable for us to have together. And so we kind of have learned that, you know, the more you rely on one another and the more you stay together, the more you do these things together, the better off everybody is. So, you know, it's of course very hard for them, but they're also, sometimes they're the ones who help me the most. Right. Um, let me know if you need to make a tissue or anything. Okay. Yeah. Um, and what, uh, what kind of lessons do you think that you and your sons have learned from David? Um, well, it's amazing because I see David in them so much and it makes me feel like David is still with us in the sense that he lives so vividly in them. I mean, he shaped them so much, so much of who they are is from David. It's incredibly obvious to watch. And uh, I think they, they obviously had a shared beginning to their lives with David. You know, David never ended up in an orphanage because he ended up being adopted by an aunt to, with great difficulty, took him in and raised him. So he was fortunate in that way. But, you know, nonetheless, I mean, they kind of had this common origin that, you know, I was raised by a single mother and she was not exactly financially well off, to put that mildly, but nowhere near the level of impoverishment and difficulty that they had in their lives. So they had this bond. And I think David instilled in them this sense of uh, kind of confidence. And I don't mean this like, macho confidence of like pretending nothing's wrong. I mean, like accepting and being honest about the things you're scared about or the things that you're suffering from, but nonetheless, like kind of persevering through it and finding a meaning in that and like using those emotions that you feel not to like be crippled or paralyzed, but to kind of propel you and with like an open heart instead of a closed one. And then I just think like politically in the broadest sense of the, the, the word, David, obviously, believe very strongly in the obligation he owed to society to give back a lot of what he was able to get and to do things for the people who were in the position that he was in, you know, not all that long ago in his childhood and to teach our kids that their obligation is very similar. And they really take that seriously. Um, you know, everything involving the NGOs that we created and now this Institute that is kind of, kind of, put everything together in one place in David's name are things they're very interested in, very involved in because of those values David instilled in them. 
And so tell us about this institute. Well, so I think I've been on your show before and have talked about one of the NGOs we have, which is something we founded in 2016 that was based on this trans woman who was homeless and she took care of like 40 or 50 dogs in this abandoned structure in the middle of the forest where David and I used to live. And that's how we met her. And it was this incredible bond of a homeless person and animals. And she ended up like kind of having this group of homeless people and they took amazing care of these animals, like their dogs, you know, Dave and I also rescued dogs. We have a lot of dogs at home and their dogs are better cared for than ours. They were so dedicated to these dogs. And so we created one nonprofit that is based on the idea of hiring people who are homeless, teaching them how to manage income, how to get an apartment, to get out the streets permanently, while at the same time we rescue dogs and place them in homes. And then the second NGO that we were able to create and that David was able to see the opening of, which was his dream, was a community center in Jacatazino that is the community that raised him, that does things like provide free classes in English and uh, computer skills so that these kids who often don't have any opportunity, will able to have skills that will give them a career, provides psychological counseling and group therapy, and then also protection for the uh, animal rights workers who work in these communities, take care of dogs, help with people's pets when they're sick and can't afford treatment. So the idea of the Institute is in the first place to kind of take these two NGOs and strengthen them and spread them to other communities and other places and expand the work they're doing, but also to pursue other projects that are reflections of the causes and the work that David's life was all about pursuing. Um, and so we're now in the process of raising funds for that. And we're going to announce the Institute uh, this no next month in July. We don't yet have the exact date, but uh, that's what we're working on a lot now. And did David like dogs before he met you? Like, did you both come to the relationship dog lovers or yeah david always loved animals he had this gigantic affinity for animals and like I, when i met david i had one dog and she was this like manhattan dog who was totally spoiled she didn't listen to anybody i would take her to central park she would like steal toys from all these like rich women and their dogs and refuse to give it back because i like thought it was funny that she didn't listen and within about a week of meeting david she completely transformed. She only listened to him because he had just such a natural affinity for dogs, but like in this kind of alpha way, not the way like I was spoiling them and being their like friends. And so within two months, we got a second dog that was this dog that someone found on the street. And from there we just started, you know, we would have this hypocritical cycle where I would pick up a dog and he would say, if you pick up one more, I'm divorcing you. And then like two months later, he'd pick up another dog and bring him home. And then I would complain as well. So we just, that's how we got involved. But yeah, David was, I mean, animal rights was one of his main causes. And your sons also loved yeah, animals? Yeah, when they had, there was like a dog at the orphanage where they lived. Um, so they had a little bit of that experience. But when they got here, you know, it's obviously a huge transition. It's like taking a kid from, you know, like rural Mississippi and moving them into the Upper East Side of uh, Manhattan. That was the, how, what a huge transition it was for them to go from where they were to, where we live and how we live and they, you know, we encourage them or actually required them to pick one of the dogs that we had at home. That would be their dog who they would take care of. Her name is Floor. She's still with us. She's very old now. And Floor is the, probably more than anybody, the, the being that helped this transition and facilitated this transition because they always could go to her and feel loved and feel safe. 
And in that, they really learn to love dogs. You know, they're, they have no choice. They're, the house is full of dogs, but they definitely have become huge dog people. And do they know what they want to do when they grow up? You know, up? they know what they want to do in the way that, like, 13 and 15-year-olds want to do. You know, like, they have some vague ideas. I mean, Joao, like, who's 15, is exactly like David. So I'm always joking that he's going to end up as a politician no matter what. He's super, like, cool, and everybody loves Joao. So it's, like, this ease to him. And then your youngest son, Jonathan, is, like, very argumentative and very, like— he loves provoking people. Oh, I wonder where he gets that from. I said, you just need to accept you're going to be a, a lawyer and then you're going to be a, a journalist. So just accept that that's your destiny. Nice. Um, and what about, like, how was David, um, like, how did he deal with what was happening to him? Um he seemed like so wise beyond his years. Um, did he offer any kind of like guidance to you guys or? Um, I mean, the thing is like David, by the time he got to the ER, was so gravely ill that the doctor said the chances he would survive the week were basically zero. And so the first three months he did survive that first week. And survived the next nine months. In the first three months, he was basically in a medically induced coma. He wasn't able to really interact at all. And he got sicker and sicker. But then, kind of magically, like miraculously, he started getting better. And we thought he was going to get better because he was awake and very communicative. And this happened two or three times over the next nine months where the doctors would call me and they would say, he's gotten extremely ill again. You basically need to prepare for the fact that he's going to passed away in the next 48 hours, the chances he's going to recover are so remote. And we'd have to go to the hospital and kind of say goodbye to him. And each time he just overcame that and got better and better. And like I said, we were able to have these moments with him that were difficult, but like very, you know, valuable And that, you know, a lot of times people don't get the chance to say goodbye to people or have those kind of conversations. And I think, you know, especially the last time he kind of knew it was likely that he was going to die. And so we got to say the things to the kids that he'd want to say to them and to me. And so, yeah, that was, but, you know, David went out fighting like against all odds in a way that was very much, you know, representative of his life. Hmm. And any things that you don't have to, I'm not like anything you want to share about what he said to you guys? Um, I mean, I think, you know, yeah, it was basically, you know, just reaffirming the fact that uh, how much he loved the kids and, and how much everything meant to him. But I think he kind of gave the kids permission to be happy and told them how much he'd want them to thrive and, you know, kind of live their lives. So, um, yeah, that was that was important. Any anecdotes you want to share about David? Like anything that you want to, that you, any stories you haven't told that you want to tell? Um, you know, like I said, I just, uh, just this week, you know, I had this, this guy contact me and he said he was a city councilman in this tiny little town of like 15,000 people that I had obviously never heard of before. It was in the northern most part of Rio de Janeiro state and it's completely impoverished. And I didn't know this, but David had twice visited this town 
because he worked to get funding in the Congress because they don't even have a ICU unit. So people who were getting very sick were forced to travel an hour, an hour and a half or two hours to the nearest hospital, you know, against bumpy roads and stuff. And for whatever reason, David just became very enamored of the people in this town. And he like went there twice and worked really hard to get them funding. And so there's like a, a, a makeshift ICU unit. And there's also like additional public transportation there that helps their lives immensely. And he came because the city council had approved this homage, this kind of thank you to David, but also like this formal uh, expression of condolences to our family. And uh, it just amazed me, like the way this guy talked about David, you know, he said like, we've had a couple politicians come before. They're very cold. They're obviously there for votes. David never once mentioned the election or votes or anything. He spent more time there than he had been scheduled to spend. Everybody loved him. Like we knew that it was so authentic and genuine, this concern he had for the people of our town. And, uh, this is something I can't tell you how many times I've heard in the last six weeks, like people who I didn't even know David interacted with or knew talking about how um, much he affected them. And then this one story I think like really captures David uh, that I've told before that there's this uh, guy who was a firefighter and a leader of his local union and his name is Cabo Daciola. And in 2011, he led a firefighter strike because the firefighters' pay was barely at subsistence level. Like, they couldn't even afford food for their family. I mean, just the pay that these firefighters were getting was insanely low. And he was this very good-looking guy, very charismatic. And he became a political star. And they won the strike. They got higher pay. And he became this left-wing working-class hero. You know, it's hard for the left-wing these days to get real working-class people who are leaders. And he became that. It turned out... Cabo was very religious. He talked about, you know, the Bible a lot as part of the worker strike and the need to take care of people. That's why they won and what his appeal was. But that religious aspect of him made him kind of anathema to the left because he was against gay marriage and wanted to amend the Constitution to say that all rights come from God and not the people. And he ended up getting expelled from that party. Anyway, by all kinds of happenstance, him and David ended up in the same party because David left PSOL uh, in 2021 because he wanted to support a different candidate, not Lula, Ciro Gomez, who's kind of the center-left candidate. And he and David, David and Cabo, formed this beautiful friendship, even though David's probably the most prominent gay politician in Brazil and Cabo is known as this kind of like anti-gay figure. And the left was very angry with David. He would post pictures of them, you know, kind of like at events, laughing or at the airport together. And... For all the claims about this guy being so hateful, when David was hospitalized, he was the one who called me the most, Cabo did, and uh, you know, would say, we want to come be with your children, I want to go to the hospital and pray with David and pray for David, um, and he insisted there be no cameras, There be, he didn't want publicity, he just wanted to kind of reach out with love for David and my kids and our family, and it was just a kind of lesson that David often taught that in politics is like hateful as it can be, as conflict driven as can it be. At the end of the day, we do all have human bonds that we share in common that can become more important than political differences. And ultimately, that is the best way to do politics. Um, you know, David got a law passed in Rio that allowed trans people to use their chosen name rather than their birth name, which is obviously important to the trans population. And he did that by sitting down with Bolsonaristas, including Bolsonaro's son, who was on the city council, and explaining why this is so important to trans people to be able to have their names recognized and got that law passed. They agreed not to oppose it. They didn't vote for it, but they agreed not to oppose it. 
And that was the kind of thing David was most proud of was the ability to kind of reach people's best human expression and work on that common ground to get things done rather than just having the same endless scripted fights over and over as theater. And I don't know, I find that to be one of the most inspiring things that David was able to accomplish. Has that guy converted yet? The uh, religious, the firefighter? Is he on board? I don't think he's on board uh, with same sex -sex marriage, marriage, but the way in which he talks publicly about our family and gay families in general is like in this deeply loving way. Just, you know, no, he has not changed his religious convictions. He's not changed his view that the law should reflect uh, biblical values. So who knows? He may never change, but he definitely is a person totally bereft of hate and. That's a person I can always work with. But that is also great. Like, I mean, as you just pointed out, it's not just about human connection, but you actually can once you may not work with this guy, but the chances you have of reaching people and converting them to your side are much greater when you Absolutely. don't. Absolutely. And it was just like, that was, it was like, you know, because David had this kind of like street vibe to him when he went back to college, a professor told him, if you want to succeed in the corporate world, he went to school for marketing you need to relearn Portuguese and get rid of your accent because it's very easily identified as somebody who comes from the favelas. And there is a lot of, he was saying that, you know, like compassionately to say like, there's a lot of prejudice. And David was like, I don't care what the cost is. I'm never going to change the way that I speak. So it was just, David was as comfortable talking to presidents and like the richest people in the world as he was like talking to the doormen and the like, the maintenance workers who worked in in the in the Congress, and it was just so natural to him. It wasn't anything forced, and that's why David was loved by everybody. And he used that to, you know, facilitate his agenda. And any other political efforts he worked on that? Yeah, you I mean, like highlight? one example is uh, in Rio de Janeiro. There's a gigantic problem with mental health problems and police. And one of the reasons there's such a high incidence of the police killing innocent people when they go into favelas is because of these mental health problems. And also police kill themselves at a very high rate in Rio and having unstable or mentally unwell police officers is very dangerous. And so one of the the last projects that David got passed through Congress was a program with a lot of money to treat, offer mental health counseling for police officers and other city workers and was able to unite right and left by telling the right, this is a, you know, program that will help the health of police officers and telling the left, this is something that will make the police better. And it was a very kind of unconventional way of approaching questions of public safety. You know, it wasn't either pro or anti-police. It was, or pro or anti-criminal. It was removing that and sort of saying, at the end of the day, we have police, they're not going away yet. And they're humans, and we'd rather have them healthy than unhealthy because that makes it safer for people. And I, that was just the way David approached things. He found those ways to unite people. Well, thank you, Glenn, so much for sharing these stories about David and yourself and your family and your dogs. Thank you, Katie. It was a, it was a really it wasn't always easy, but it was a great opportunity to kind of describe why David was so extraordinary and why his legacy um, is something that we really care about preserving so i really appreciate it thanks again for listening to the katie helper show to hear the rest of that discussion please join the patreon at patreon.com slash the katie helper show again that's patreon.com slash the katie helper show 
If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Halper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordoba. See you next time. Bye.